Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to, uh, uh, rather quickly this morning, uh, we normally don't do a, a full sermon on communion Sundays, but uh, we're going to today. We're going to finish up our study in the book of uh, Nehemiah chapter 13. I want to take you through uh, this text. A lot of it is uh, review, uh, but we want to hit it really hard before we, uh, before we end our study of the book of Nehemiah, and then we'll move into communion here in uh, just a few moments. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're going to take you through the text uh, rather quickly uh, this morning. Well, you'll remember that in February we began our study uh, that we uh, saw and looked at as the memoirs or the diary of an ordinary man whose name was uh, Nehemiah. I, I use that term ordinary because I think it's important that so many times as we read through Scripture, and especially as we study through Scripture that tends to be a narrative, it tends to be a story, that we think, well, these were supernatural, extra human beings. I mean, they weren't like me, they weren't like you. We have a tendency sometimes to think that way, and I want you to understand that is never true. It's never true. These were ordinary men and women that really believed, in this particular case, in the case of Nehemiah, that really believed that God could do something extraordinary in and through his life. And that's what we've studied for the last uh, several months as we've looked at his uh, diary. We've studied his quest to rebuild the walls there in Jerusalem and to renew the passion of the people for Jehovah God. And now that the walls have been rebuilt successfully in just 52 days and the people's hearts are bent toward the things of God, it would be very easy for us just to close. And I, and I have often wondered as I've read through the book of Nehemiah in years gone by, why is chapter 13 actually there? It would have been good to end someplace right before chapter 13 because chapter 13, if we're not careful, can be a little bit discouraging to us. And you'll see what I mean as we work through this text. So many times we think, hey, once my heart gets bent in the right direction, once my heart is focused where it needs to be, then I have success in my life. I'm in a good place, right? Isn't that how it happens in your life? I mean, you do battle with a controlling habit in your life. Maybe it's, maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's uh, alcohol, pornography, some type of other controlling substance in your life. Maybe it's a lack of spiritual passion that you have. Maybe it's little or no time in prayer or Bible study or, or ministry to other people. Maybe you struggle with issues in your character related to lying or gossip or uh, having a critical spirit. Maybe you misuse money in one way or the other. Maybe it's you spend too much money that you don't have or you hoard money that you do have that God has entrusted to your care as a manager. Maybe it's the obsession that you have to earn money. Maybe it's just simply put the way that you manage it. Maybe you've been in a battle where you've had a dysfunctional relationship, and I don't know what that dysfunctional relationship might be for you. It may be that you're here this morning and you're in a marriage where you know it's dysfunctional. You know as you sit here this morning and you have me open up this text and you know in just a few moments we're going to celebrate the Lord's table and you've been here long enough and you know what I'm going to say about these things. You know you sit there with a dysfunctional relationship. Maybe it's with your spouse. Maybe it's with the child. Maybe it's with a sibling. Maybe it's with your parents. In any case, we come to these battles in our life and if you're like me, you've done battle in those areas and then all of a sudden, you come to the point where you understand what God says, 
and you determine to agree with what God says in your life, you understand what your sin is in light of what you read in Scripture, you confess it, you move in a new direction, and voila, things are great, right? No more problems, no more heartache, no more battle in that particular area of your life, because after all, you've won the battle, right? There's no more problems in those relationships. There's no more problems with that controlling habit that you have in your life. There's no more problems with a lack of spiritual passion. There's no more problems in those relationships or with the way that you manage money. Everything is great. On to higher heights in your relationship with Jesus. I'm ready to fight new battles. Is that the way it works in your life? It's not the way it works in my life. In fact, I have become convinced in my own life that Uh, Living life as a Christ follower is not simply gaining one victory after the other or solving one problem in my life after the other and then moving on to a new one. Oftentimes, and you see if you agree with me this morning, I find that I continually do battle in the exact same areas. Is anybody with me this morning? You go, I I, I know this. I know this. Now, Now, for me, if you've been here any length of time, you know for me, It is um, what I call the Oprah effect on my life with regards to uh, dieting and exercise and eating. I I say the Oprah effect. If you followed Oprah, you understand she's in the same battle that I'm in. Um, I won't tell you which side of the battle she's on at this particular moment, but I'm just saying that's, that's what happens. I know what's right to do, and you think, well, you lose the weight, and you think, well, I'm, I'm done now. Now I can work on some other issue that's in my life. That's not what I found to be true. I found it to be true in my life that the things that I struggle with most, I continually struggle with. I have battles. I do battle. God gets a hold of my heart. I confess. I move in a new direction. And then if I'm not careful very quickly, I begin to go back to those same things. I have become convinced in my life that Satan knows where those areas are. And until I'm with Jesus, I'm going to struggle in particular areas. Now, here's what's very comforting to me is that the Apostle Paul backs me up on his observation. Uh, You can flip over in your Bibles if you have them there to Romans chapter 7. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in verse 15. For what am I doing? I like that. The Apostle Paul says, what am I doing? I don't understand. for, For I am not practicing what I'd like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. Why? Because the law points out the things that I'm doing wrong. Verse 17, so now no longer am I, do, am, am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Look at verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Anybody, can anybody relate to that? willing, but somehow it's just not happening. Look at verse 19. For the good that I want to do, I don't do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Anybody there, can you affirm with the Apostle Paul that that is part of the journey, that's part of the battle that we're in? The good things that we want to do, we find ourselves not doing. The things that we know we're not supposed to do, we find ourselves doing. Verse 20, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. And then look at verse 24. I love this. 
The Apostle Paul, probably one of the greatest Christians that ever walked on the planet. Here's what he said in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. (laughs) I say that pretty often, don't you? Don't you look in the mirror sometimes and just go, man, how can I not get victory over this? How can I continue in, in this habit that I know is wrong and is displeasing to God? How can I continue in this dysfunctional relationship? And you look in the mirror and you, and you think, what a wretched person that I am. Then he asked the question, who shall set me free from the body of this death? Verse 25 is the good news. If you're like me this morning and you relate to the text, verse 25 is Paul's great response. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, it is God that is capable of giving me the victory. God is able to do something in your life, in that area that you're struggling with this morning, whether it be with another person, whether it be in your own personal life, God is capable of doing that. And that's exactly what is taking place here as we close our study of the book of Nehemiah. The same old problems are back. Now, if we put these uh, chronological pieces together, uh, we see that after Nehemiah had served as governor in Jerusalem for about 12 years, he returned to serve King Artaxerxes again as his cupbearer. You remember, that's what he had done prior to coming uh, back to Jerusalem. He had enjoyed all the benefits there of serving the king in that way. And it was during his time back in Persia uh, that uh, at his old job that a prophet by the name of Malachi, maybe you've studied that book, probably just this week in your devotional times, you studied Malachi. It's at that time that Malachi writes uh, in his prophetic book, and he exposes the priest and the people for their sinful defection from what they knew to be right. He scolded them for shoddy worship in Malachi 1 and a corrupt priesthood in Malachi 2 and uh, having marriages with foreigners, those that did not follow Jehovah God there in chapter 2. And then in Malachi chapter 3, he exposed the robbing of God by not paying their tithe. This sound familiar with what we talked about just a few weeks ago in uh, chapter 10? Now, we can speculate that Nehemiah may have heard about these things. He may have heard that things were not well in Jerusalem. In fact, as I studied this week and I read uh, various uh, theologians and commentators on this particular passage, I would tend to say that Nehemiah was aware, and that is what prompted him to go back to Jerusalem. Now, he could have simply dismissed those reports uh, of the spiritual condition of the people, and he could have rationalized it away that he had done his part. Let me stop for just a moment, and I've said this several times in the context of the book of Nehemiah. Those of you that are here this morning, and you've walked with the Lord a long time, and you think that you've reached the point in your life where now it's time to let the younger people do it, I've fulfilled my responsibilities. Let me tell you, do not give in to that. Don't give in to that logic. God has not finished using you with where you are until that trumpet blows or until he decides to take you home. God's not done. There's still something that you have to offer as you minister on this planet and in this particular body of Christ. He could have rationalized that he'd done his part. In fact, most Bible scholars believe that at this particular time, he was somewhere between 65 and 70 years old. That's just about the time that in America we say, hey, I'm about ready to hang up the tool belt, right? I'm about ready to hang up my tools and I'm about ready to kind of coast out for the next hopefully 20 years or so and really enjoy retirement. But that's what, not what Nehemiah bought into. It wasn't the time now for him to sit back and just relax there at the king's palace as his cupbearer. 
Maybe he should have said, maybe a younger reformer or a younger leader should take the reins. He should go back and, and confront these issues. But none of those potential excuses deterred Nehemiah from responding to the need. And so he returns and he once again begins confronting the problems head on. And that's where we find ourselves uh, in Nehemiah chapter 13. Now, these are the same old problems that we have discussed, all right? So I'm not going to beat the dead horse, whatever that means. We talk about that in staff meetings sometimes. What does it mean to beat a dead horse? Have you ever wondered about that? Study that sometimes. I don't know, but we say it, all right? So we're not going to beat a dead horse here today, whatever that means. We've discussed these things in depth, but I want to summarize and briefly remind you of the areas that they were struggling in. Number one, and there's four, just real quickly. Number one is compromise. Look at verses four through nine. Nehemiah quickly finds out, let me summarize, that Eliashib, the priest, has given one of Nehemiah's arch enemies uh, not just residency in the city, but he has actually given him several rooms right there within the temple. Now, you remember in our study that we first met Tobiah in chapter 2, and that he was the one, one of the ones, remember I mentioned him, I think, last week. He was the one who ridiculed the builders on the wall and said what? Even if a fox gets up on top of this wall, what's going to happen? The wall's going to collapse. This wall won't even be able to stand up. This is that same Tobiah. Now he's residing right there in the temple. Verse 5 tells us that they gave him a large room. That was where they used to put the offerings. Now, how ironic is we're going to see in verses 10 through 14 that there wasn't much space needed for the offerings at this particular moment because the people weren't giving what they were supposed to be given. And so they gave him that spot. They gave that space to someone who had directly opposed the rebuilding of the wall and the reestablishment of Jerusalem itself. Now, I'm, I'm sure that Eliashib uh, must have reasoned that Tobiah wasn't such a bad guy after all. I mean, people change, right? I mean, you, you can't judge him for who he is right now. People change. You know, they move in a new direction. They grow. They mature. I'm sure that Tobiah has changed. With, without repentance, though, and this is important for you to remember, if, if you have moved in a wrong direction, and, and, and then you come back into a different place, it's important for you to understand that whether it's you that's been here and moving back here, or you're simply here and watching a person move back to here, without repentance, what is repentance? Repentance is I agree with God, I agree with what God says about where I've been and what I've been doing, and now I'm going to move in a new direction. If there is no repentance, there is no change. You need to understand that. Eliashib could have saved himself and the people of the city of Jerusalem great heartache had he followed through in that principle. One person once said, when people show you who they truly are, believe what you see. That is who they are. But Eliashib compromised and he defiled uh, the temple. You know, you'll notice Nehemiah's swift response to this defilement of the temple. Look at verse 8. It says that he was very displeased. Now, you're going to find as we work through this text here the next few minutes that um, for maybe for some of you to say that you were very displeased really isn't that big of a deal. For Nehemiah to say that he wasn't pleased is a big deal, all right? That means he's, you know, in our vernacular, if I was translating Scripture and putting it into my vernacular, I would say, Nehemiah's torqued. I mean, he is ticked off. He's not just, ah, real comfortable with that he is very displeased and so he threw all of his stuff out onto the streets that's what he did he didn't say to Eliashib the priest hey let's set up an appointment 
Maybe we could meet for coffee and a bagel, and we could talk to Tobiah and just kind of try to get, a, get an idea of where his heart really is. <laughs> Nehemiah said, I know this man. He has shown me who he is in the past. I know there's been no repentance, and so I accept that that's who he is. And so he takes all of his stuff and he throws it out into the streets. I mean, he throws his clothes, his recliner, get this, his Xbox, his microwave, his bathrobe, his toothbrush, his razor. He throws everything out into the streets. Imagine Tobiah. He's gone for the day, just on a little day trip, comes back to the temple, gets ready to enjoy a good evening, and all of a sudden he realizes my stuff is gone. In fact, I think it was sitting out next to the curb. That's exactly what Nehemiah did. No tolerance whatsoever. And you'll find if you keep reading through there in the text, he didn't even want the smell of Tobiah to be there in the temple. So he literally had them come in and do a fumigation. He just said, I don't even want the guy's smell in here. I don't even want to smell his cologne. He's filthy. He's dirty. He's rotten to the core. And he's not a follower of Jehovah God. What do you think about that? You know, maybe because of compromise, there's something that's taken up residency in your life that is causing a foul smell. I don't know what that might be this morning, but maybe you have allowed something to secretly move into your life and to take up residency that is controlling you. And even as I talk this morning, immediately it pops into your mind. You know what it is. I want to challenge you to deal with it like Nehemiah dealt with Tobiah, to just simply throw it out of your life, because if you don't, eventually it will destroy you. It will hinder your testimony, it will destroy you, and most of the time, as we've said in previous weeks in our study of Nehemiah, it won't just simply have an effect on you, but many times it has an effect on other people. It's that sin of compromise. Number two, look at verses 10 through 14. You'll remember that in chapter 10, part of the agreement that the people made was to pay their tithe. They'd agreed to take care of the house of the Lord. Imagine how disappointed Nehemiah must have been when he came back after being away for a few years and he found out in verse 10 that the needs of the temple staff were not being taken care of. When we see Nehemiah's frustration in verse 11, it says, So I reprimanded the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? Now imagine again, I don't think Nehemiah was just sitting there going, Hey guys, um, come close. Hey, um, you taking care of these things? I, I think his response was something like this. Why has the house of God been forsaken? I mean, you talk about leadership. Most commentaries in the book of Nehemiah are cloaked underneath the title of leadership. This dude was a leader, okay? He was a leader. He confronted issues head on. As simply put, he reprimanded the leaders for allowing the people to be selfish with what God had entrusted to them. And then he re-instructed the people, and then he put people in charge of that who he knew would be responsible and would see, see that through. Here's the simple lesson for us with regards to selfishness. Compromise and then selfishness. Sometimes we think as human beings that we can do more with God's portion of what he asks us to give back to him. We think we can do more if we keep our portion uh, and his portion. Sometimes we rationalize, I have bills to pay, and once I get those bills paid, I'll give back to God. Once I have those bills paid and I have all my stuff taken care of, then I'll be generous with other people when I see needs in the body of Christ or in my community. Well, things are tight right now. I just can't afford to be generous. 
I've discovered in my life, and I know some of you have as well, that I can do more with what is left over after I give back to God what is rightfully his than if I take what's rightfully his and add it to what is rightfully mine and I try to do more with it. See, these people were selfish, and as a result of their selfishness, great tragedy was happening again in Jerusalem. Look at verses 15 through 22. We see also it wasn't just compromise, it wasn't just selfishness, but it was materialism, wrong priorities as well. We also learned in chapter 10 that many of the people did not see their day of worship as a priority. It was something, verses 15 to 22, if they, if they can do it, then, then they'll do it. But if it, if it, if it, if it kind of interferes with their day or if it interferes with, with their plans, then it's not really that big of a priority. But they made a commitment in chapter 10 that they would not do business on the Lord's day. They bought into the idea that they could do more in six days than seven days if they violated that Jewish Sabbath day. It kind of reminds me of Chick-fil-A. If you've ever uh, studied the story of Chick-fil-A and how they determined very early on, we will honor God on that seventh day and we will allow our employees to do the same thing. And we just happen to believe we can do more in six days than if we stayed open on the seventh day, even though we knew we, we know we could do a lot of business on Sunday. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday, right? I mean, I want to go Monday through Saturday. I would definitely do it on Sunday. But they bought into that idea. That honoring God is more important than more profits. I don't think there's a Wall Street uh, investment banker out there that wouldn't love to take Chick-fil-A public. God has blessed them as a result of a priority that is really just that simple. But how soon these people forget. In fact, look at verse uh, 15. It said, In those days I saw in Judah some were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish of all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. These people are doing exactly what they said they weren't going to do. Nehemiah's ticked off. He's frustrated. He's upset. So much so that look at verse 17. It's got to be one of your favorite verses in the whole book. Look at verse 17. Then I reprimanded the nobles of Judah, and I said to them, What is this evil thing you're doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Didn't your fathers do the same thing and Didn't we settle this before I left to go back to to Persia to work for the king? Didn't we do this? Verse 21, he talked to the merchants then. It says, then I warned them and said to them, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? They were spending the night right there so that it's almost as if, so that if the Jews kind of came outside of the wall and go, uh, hey, do you got a Chick-fil-A sandwich? I mean, I know it's a Sabbath day, but I am hungry. Oh, yeah, we got some. Hey, you know, do you have some of those, uh, you know, some of that bluebell ice cream? Any guilty parties in the audience? Only one. Thank you for being honest. It's important. And they were right there at the temple as if to taunt the people. And Nehemiah said, hey, if you do it again, I'm going to use force against you. And I don't think it was just like what my grandma used to use. You know, she'd go to that willow tree and get a little switch and she'd kind of, and you kind of go, I really didn't hurt him, you know. I don't think that's what he meant. I think he looked at him in their eye and said, hey, if you do that again, I'm going to use force against you. I'm going to kick your 
backsides. That's what I'm going to do. So if you do that again, if you come near the walls, if you stand outside the gates and you cause these people to violate the Sabbath day, to get their priorities all mixed up, or the idea that they can do commerce, you're going to be in trouble. They once again, though, these people saw this as an opportunity to make a buck, and because of their desire for more, they compromised the commitment that they had made in years earlier. They really aren't too different for, from us today, I've come to the conclusion. Dads, isn't it easy for us to work to the point where our priorities become lost? They kind of become mixed up just a little bit. We rationalize that if we work just a little bit harder, if we stay at the office just a little bit longer, we can have a nicer house. We can, we can drive a nicer car. We can send our kids to a better school. We can go on a nicer vacation. We might even be able to retire just a little bit earlier if we work just a little bit harder, if we put just a few more hours in. I tell you this morning, our kids don't need nicer homes. They don't need nicer cars. They don't need better schools. They don't need nicer vacations, dads. They need us. And by the way, for some of you moms, you could put those shoes on and wear them and walk in them a little bit too. They don't need more stuff. They need us. Yet these people had bought into the idea that that materialism and wrong priorities would somehow get them where they needed to be and instead just the opposite was happening. I want to encourage you to make sure you have the right priorities and that materialism is not taking away from those things in your life that matter the very most. Look at verses 23 to 31 as we close here. The last thing was wrong relationships. You'll remember the last uh, commitment that they made in chapter 10 was about who their kids would marry, right? In fact, they would only marry followers of Jehovah God. Nehemiah, that was a big deal to him. It was not only a big deal to him, but as I said earlier, when Malachi wrote, it was a big deal to Malachi in chapter 2 of his prophetic book as well, that our children would not marry those that did not bow at the knee of Jehovah God, bow their knee to Jehovah God. They would only marry followers of God. But it's tragic how quickly they forgot that commitment. If you read down, starting at verse 23, you'll see uh, that, uh, in fact, verse 24 is, For their children half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah. How did that happen? Because they married the wrong people. They were interacting with the wrong people, with the wrong priorities. Now, if you didn't like verse 17, you definitely won't like verse 25, because Nehemiah, again, look what he does here. So I contended with them. By the way, that again is not, I sat and had a cup of coffee with them at Starbucks and we talked about it. You know, dad, maybe you shouldn't let your daughter marry that dirt bag over there. You know, I mean, he's not a follower of Jehovah. He's got all these carvings in his, I mean, something's wrong here. Dad, don't, don't do that. No, no. I, I, I submit to you that if we were to go back to the original language of the, of the Jews, contended wasn't just a little chat that they had. Contended was a confrontation. Look at, I know it was a confrontation. Look at the verse. So I contended with them and I cursed them and struck some of them. I thought that, that's not bad enough, okay? I cursed at them. Now, by the way, that wasn't four-letter words that are used today. That's not what Nehemiah was doing here. He cursed at them. He struck some of them. And if that's not bad enough, he did what the girls did in my high school in Omaha, Nebraska, in the hallways, 
He pulled out their hair. Don't you love that? I mean, he pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, the text says, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. This is about the time when I'd say, man, would I pay a lot of money for a DVD of this? Wouldn't it be awesome? Here's this guy, trots back into town, and he goes, what are you doing? I told you not to do that. And by the way, he's going to tell him, didn't Solomon's example show you what happens when you compromise in this way? And so he punches the guy out, guys out, and he pulls their hair out. I'm telling you, he was passionate about purity. He was passionate about obedience to God. You know, it's in our natural human behavior, our sinful condition as human beings, to drift back to those things which in the past have shipwrecked our lives. It's so easy for us to do that. And, and that's why times of confession and times of refocusing our commitment to our Savior are important in the Christian life. And we're going to have that opportunity here in just a few moments at the communion table as we remember the sacrifice that was made for our sin debt. But what a reformer this man Nehemiah was. Some people say, hey, when I get to heaven, I want to sit down with Peter. I really, he's high on my list, too. I want to sit down with him. I want to sit down with Paul. I want to sit down with Daniel and find out what it was like to be with those lions overnight. I mean, I want to talk about David, you know, as he's doing that slingshot. Those guys are all on my list, my top ten probably. Man, I want to sit down with Nehemiah. I want to say, hey, bud, what, what caused you at age 65, 70? to leave your comfort zone and go back to those people and confront the sin that was going on in that culture? What caused you to do that? Where did you get, get that deep passion for purity and for obedience from? I want to ask that question. I want to say, hey, and like in your diary, chapter 13, hey, what were you thinking when you punched those guys, cursed them out, and pulled their hair out? I mean, don't you think that's just a tad overboard? Nehemiah was a reformer, and I'm intrigued regularly as we read throughout the book, and I know you've probably noticed this, as we read through his diary, and he writes the phrase, remember me, oh my God. He says it several times right here in chapter 13, and he's done it various times in, in the book. Remember me, oh my God. He obeyed God nobly. And for many centuries now, he has been enjoying that reward that comes from being obedient, his reward which is eternal in heaven. I want to ask you the question, when our memoirs, when your memoirs are published at the end of, our, of your journey, what's going to be your story? I have become convinced as I've studied this book now uh, several times, but, but a, a lot more in depth this time than I have in the past, that I really want my life to look like Nehemiah's. I want my ep epitaph on that, on that tombstone to read something like, he walked nobly with his God. He walked boldly with his God. He wasn't afraid to speak truth. He wasn't afraid of the consequences of doing right. And above all else, he lived his life for the glory of God. Wouldn't that be a great epitaph? Wouldn't that be great to have that written on your tombstone?
I believe that was written on Nehemiah's, and as I said, for the last many centuries, he's been enjoying his reward in heaven. And I trust it'll be that way for us. Let's